0: Every day in the triad, families live on the edge. Some are looking for a home they can afford. Many others are just one bill away from eviction. These housing problems here are rooted in history and shape our present and future. And the safety net, meant to protect our most vulnerable citizens, plays a role. And You're climbing, you're climbing, you're climbing, and you can't get anywhere.
1: I, I don't get but a little over $700 a month, and I can't, I just couldn't pay all the bills.
2: When they put that mark on you, That's that's, that's like a, what do you call it, a
0: tattoo? You can't get rid of it. Today, we'll hear three stories from WFDD's investigation into housing struggles in the triad, and we'll answer your questions. This is On The Margins. I'm Emily McCord. Later in the program, we'll look at evictions and the government organization tasked with housing our poorest community members. But first, we examine something that's becoming increasingly rare here, affordable housing. Here's how vast the problem is. In Greensboro alone, the city needs 26,000 units to fill the gap, a seemingly impossible task. Over the last year, WFDD has taken stock of the Triad's housing crisis. We joined partners at Carolina Data Desk at UNC's School of Media and Journalism and students at Wake Forest University's journalism program to pull back the layers. What's driving this crisis? Where and how is it being felt? And what can be done to still attract growth while preserving housing where it's needed most? We go now to a small neighborhood at the edge of Greensboro's downtown. WFDD's Bethany Chafin followed an unusual path to get here, but found a rare window into a place in jeopardy of losing valuable, affordable housing.
3: This intersection in this corner of Greensboro is a dividing line. I'm standing here between two neighborhoods. One is Thriving. So if you look one way, you can see downtown, you can see the tallest building in Greensboro peeking over the horizon, and you can see all of the new development in Southside that even though it was done about 20 years ago, it still looks so bright and shiny and new. Southside is a vibrant area. Brick townhomes surrounding yoga studios and hair salons, perfect landscaping, new sidewalks, and don't forget the sweet and savory flavors of the bustling dame's chicken and waffles. And when you look to the left, this is the beginning of old Ashboro. And what brought me here was a series of old maps. Maps that in many ways have become predictors of where gentrification happens. So when I came to old Ashboro, I thought I'd see new investment and new residents. But instead, what I saw here was something far different. Boarded up homes, vacant lots, people loitering at a corner Sitco gas station, the neighbors call them daywalkers. So about those maps. When you look at them, what you see first is how colorful they are. You see blue and green, yellow and red, all this patchwork over the city of Greensboro. The federal government drew up these maps after the stock market crashed in 1929. The colors guided banks to make safer bets on where they loaned their money. This process is called redlining, and used race as one of the hazards to warn away banks. Old Ashboro was considered high-risk, colored yellow and red because of the nearby black neighborhoods. Why does this all matter? Old Ashboro has nearly 700 residential properties, vital housing stock in a city that doesn't have enough affordable options. In fact, Carolina Data Desk found the current average assessed value for homes here is about $50,000, still within reach for low-income buyers. So how do you lift a neighborhood stained by lending discrimination? And how do you preserve the culture and affordable housing it provides? Is it even possible? To find out more, I turned left into the heart of the neighborhood. Jody Martin stands outside his house on Tuscaloosa Street watching his cat sunbathe.
4: I I love cats. Uh, I just call him Gray. um, uh, He's been with me for about two or three years now.
3: Jody knows this view, these homes, these neighbors like the back of his hand. He grew up here and he plans to grow older here.
4: Uh, My parents bought this house back in 1953. The White people that used to live in the area started moving out, and then the first black families moved into this
3: neighborhood. This was a defining moment in old Asheboro. Some black families settled here after the city cleared what it determined, in its words, slums nearby. Homes there had reached such a level of decay, the city bulldozed to start over. Some rented space in large Victorians, left vacant as Greensboro's movers and shakers migrated to the suburbs. Others, like Jody's parents, bought modest homes along streets like Tuscaloosa. An all-black neighborhood was what Jody knew growing up.
4: If you weren't some sort of a service worker or whatnot, you rarely ever saw a white person over here.
3: He remembers his childhood riding his bike around the neighborhood down to his grandparents' house. At home, he dove into comic books, and his soundtrack was guided by his mom's love of Nat King Cole.
4: That's why, darling, it's incredible that's someone so unforgettable. When Jody
3: was six or seven, he once asked his dad if they were poor.
4: He told me, he says, No, we're lower middle class. Now, we were poor. I mean, we lived in a five room house, but, you know, we had everything we wanted.
3: Despite money being tight, Jody's family invested in their home, adding rooms and a basement. The wealth they built would be passed down to Jody when he inherited the house after his mother died. A home can be a family's fastest way to build equity and have something to give the next generation. But there's still a large racial disparity in average net housing wealth. According to a 2016 National Survey of Consumer Finances, for a white household, it's over $215,000. For a black household, less than half that. But for Jody and his family, a house was about more than money.
4: When you don't have, you know, the fear of, you know, wanting anything, needing anything, when you know you're in a safe place, everything else is possible.
3: Today, Jody still feels rooted here, even though the neighbors he grew up with are gone.
4: All of the original black owners have either all died or moved away.
3: Like Jody, a lot of the remaining homeowners in Old Ashboro have been here a long time. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about half of them have been in their houses for at least 20 years, and quite a few for more than 40. As residents age out of the community, not all of the homes are staying in the family. And that could be a problem for old Ashboro. To see why, all you need to do is look a few blocks away to Julian Street. House after house is abandoned, left to decay, like this one. It's actually really beautiful from the outside. So there's a lockbox on the front door. The windows are boarded up. The window that's broken is next to a yellow condemned sign. And it looks like this condemned sign is from February 19th, 2010. So it's obviously been here for a while. This type of deterioration took root in the 1940s. Absentee landlords neglected maintenance on aging homes. Others couldn't afford these costs. And as a result of redlining, there were few new dollars, new loans being invested here. By the 70s, the neighborhood was in serious jeopardy, and the city knew it. Stakes were high. Old Ashboro had affordable homes the city didn't want to lose. So Greensboro invoked state law and declared Old Ashboro blighted. This made things official. The city could intervene to stabilize the neighborhood, but no one predicted how long it would take. In the 1990s, Michael Akins took his wife B to see the house he wanted to renovate on Caldwell Street. At the time, she couldn't imagine making a home here.
5: The disparity, the drug infestation, um, the prostitution that was going on, and then just how this part of town at that time was so much different than the side of town that I came from.
3: But Michael saw a place of resilience, a community he'd be proud to live in.
5: People that I had known,
6: like growing up from little guy, this was a, a community that they chose to move to, and moving out of the, you know, in, in moving out of the projects or moving out of the apartments that they had lived in. When they decided to buy a home, it wasn't that they went somewhere else; that they came to a neighborhood like this.
3: Today, with their children grown and gone, B and Michael are still waiting for Old Ashboro's potential to be fully realized. As president of the Neighborhood Association, B. proudly points to the new downtown Greenway extension, a community garden, and recently installed public art. But she says it can be an uphill battle.
5: And you're climbing, you're climbing, you're climbing, and you can't get anywhere. Am I seeing some change?
6: Yes. Am I seeing, have I seen as much change as I anticipated?
3: No. They see the answer in more homeowners, people who will sit on their porches mow their lawns, plant flowers. Now, fewer than 42% of the residents here own. There are few signs that number is likely to increase anytime soon. Carolina Data Desk found for every 100 people living in Old Ashboro, only eight applied for a mortgage. Across Guilford and Forsyth counties, that number was nearly double. And for the homeowners who are coming, well, their arrival is through heroic effort. Mary Witherspoon and William Scott are watching their new three bedroom, two bath house go up before their very eyes. They're about to be first time homeowners.
5: She's been over there every day to talk to the contractor workers. When you roll up, they say, We see you coming, Mary. They know who it is when she's coming up there while I'm at work. she, She goes over there and checks on the progress.
3: Until now, they've been renting a place just blocks away from the house they bought on Reed Street. And they're bucking a trend. Black homeownership in Greensboro has been declining since the recession. An American public media analysis shows that beginning in 2011, it dropped five percentage points in five years. Mary and William are thrilled about the opportunity.
5: That's all she talks about nowadays.
3: Which is a big deal. For Mary, speaking takes effort. She has a tracheostomy tube. But when you bring up her new house, William's right. She lights up.
2: Oh, girl, I got so much joy.
1: If I wouldn't. didn't even think we could be able to get this house, but we got this house, and I am delighted. I am happy.
3: A small local nonprofit called Community Housing Solutions is making it happen. It's a win-win. The neighborhood gets well-made homes and dedicated homeowners. Buyers get efficient, affordable houses and a chance to build wealth. It takes a lot to make this work. City-owned land, donated materials, volunteer builders. But pulling this off for old Ashborough's 132 vacant residential lots? Not likely. Back on Julian Street, Carl Brower knocks on the no trespassing sign in front of an empty lot the city cleared to make room for revitalization.
5: One of the properties that the city has bought um, is available for, you know, someone to put a single-family
3: home in there. But it takes some imagination to see it. The grass is knee high. There's trash strewn about. It's an eyesore, and a hard sell. Property values are low in this neighborhood. That means a brand new house here will immediately be worth less than a brand new house somewhere else in the city. Carolina Data Desk found the average tax value of residential homes in Old Ashboro is just under forty-seven thousand dollars. A casualty of those redlining maps. By comparison. The city average is more than three times that.
5: But until we see these areas that are vacant and available, filled with home ownership and persons in the community that want this community to be what we want it to be, uh, we are going to have an ever-ending struggle.
3: For decades, it's been hard to get much here, whether residential or commercial. The neighborhood recently got a family dollar, but Carl says the property sat vacant for 20 years before that. It's the same story for another undeveloped lot nearby.
5: It's been out for bid and looking for proposals for over 10 years. And we've had a couple of nibbles, as the fisherman would say. We haven't had a bite.
3: Despite that, Carl thinks the neighborhood is at a turning point. He imagines a community where it's not such a heavy lift to lure a family dollar. He welcomes a place like Southside, where people can work, live, and play. The city's been trying to court such an investment for a while. One thing is for sure.
5: It's taken longer than anybody could imagine.
3: I'm back at the crossroads where I began, the gateway to the neighborhood. So this corner is where you can feel that the revitalization of downtown is creeping closer and closer to Old Ashboro. You can see downtown and the skyline. And the question has always been, how and will Old Mm Ashboro connect with downtown? And there are so many more. Will family members stay or return like Jody Martin wants?
4: I'll be here, and, and I'm hoping um, if either my niece or my nephew want to, eventually they'll take it over, repair it.
3: Will it be renters or homeowners like B and Michael Akins who move in as residents age out? Even though my uh, professional colleagues may not live over here and the folk I've known haven't
5: lived over here, um, and ask us continuously today, why do we live over here? I always say it's because this is where I believe I belong.
3: And what will future development look like? Carl Brower says the line between uplifting and gentrifying is a very fine one.
5: We're not trying uh, to keep anybody from developing, but it has to be the development that's going to fit the culture of this city and the culture of this neighborhood.
3: But if and when the money starts flowing, it might not be up to them or the city. What's clear is that the next few years will be crucial. For now, they wait, as they have for decades, feeling the pull of the future and the gravity of the past. For WFDD, I'm Bethany Chaffin.
0: This is On the Margins. I'm Emily McCord. We've been asking you for your questions throughout our reporting process on housing. Here's listener Julie Bell.
3: Everyone wants to live in safe, thriving neighborhoods, but often we've seen that well-intentioned improvements lead to gentrification and displacement for poorer residents who have called those neighborhoods home. How can we address these problems together without hurting our poorest citizens? What solutions are more positive for the whole community?
0: WFDD reporter Bethany Chafin joins me now. Bethany, what did you find out about this?
3: Hey, Emily. Yes, I did a lot of research for this project. And uh, throughout that research, I spoke with Greensboro City Council member Justin Outling. And he said that although Greensboro hasn't experienced the levels of gentrification that perhaps Uptown Charlotte has, for example, he does say that the city is working to address this issue so that if prices in certain areas like Old Ashboro do rise, hopefully Hopefully, people will be able to stay. That said, this is a really complex problem because, you know, Julie makes a good point. Often improvements are well-intentioned. And in many cases, growth is a good thing. So a lot of residents in Old Ashboro want and need to see growth there. They've invested and they'd like to see their property values rise. The problem comes when that growth is so rapid that it ends up pricing people out. And what usually happens is this is caused by property taxes becoming so high that people can't afford it. So a possible solution, uh, for example, in Atlanta, they have what's called an anti-displacement tax fund. And it helps to cover significant hikes in property taxes in areas that are gentrifying. Other solutions could come in the form of capping property taxes or providing a rebate so that people can stay where they live.
0: Okay, so that's uh, just a few ways to alleviate some of the problems associated with gentrification. What are some other ways to help
3: communities affected by it? Definitely. So, there are programs that encourage and facilitate home ownership for low income buyers. These are wonderful. Um, the nonprofit mentioned in the piece Community Housing Solutions. They helped Mary and William, for example, become first time home buyers. Uh, but they actually, this organization, predominantly do home repairs. So, this can be a big help in low income neighborhoods because it allows people who might be burdened by a repair or a maintenance cost that would otherwise threaten their ability to keep the home, while well, it helps them to stay there. And another thing that's perhaps not quite as directly related to gentrification, but it certainly helps communities affected by it, is to recognize and invest in preserving the history in these places. So for example, there is a home called the Magnolia House just outside of Old Ashboro. During segregation, it was listed in what's called the Green Book, and that means that it was a location where African Americans who were traveling knew they could stay. This is a really fascinating place where people like James Brown, Ray Charles, and Jackie Robinson stayed. Um, it's been renovated and eventually will be open as a and b They do events and brunches right now. So ensuring that the history of these neighborhoods that are changing or might change in the future, or even maybe were cleared in the past by redevelopment, ensuring that that history endures is really important.
0: In her question, Julie Bell asks, how can we address these problems
3: together? Uh, Bethany, what might that look like? You know, one of the things that makes Old Ashboro really unique is the strength of its neighborhood association. And when I spoke with an individual named Dan Curry while doing research for this project, uh, he is someone who helped write the first redevelopment plan for Old Ashboro. I asked him what makes a good neighborhood, and really quickly he said, good governance. And that means having people that care, who are involved. And he said that the areas where there is good governance happening, where there are strong neighborhood associations, these are the neighborhoods that persevere and they survive all the changes. So over and over again in my conversations, people emphasized how important it is to be at the table. And so as a result, I think supporting strong neighborhood associations uh, helps these areas to have a voice.
0: WFDD reporter Bethany Chafin, thank you. Thanks, Emily. Stay with us. Coming up later in the hour, we bring you our in-depth investigation into the Winston-Salem Housing Authority. But first, we take a look at evictions. This is On the Margins. I'm Emily McCord. While parts of the triad are flourishing, new bike trails, microbreweries, and coffee shops, below the shiny surface lies a region in crisis. Children without enough to eat and families unable to climb out of poverty. And at the center of all that is housing instability. Since 2014, about half of the renters in Guilford and Forsyth counties have faced eviction, some several times. We've looked into the numbers and this startling fact. Winston-Salem and Greensboro have among the highest eviction rates in the country. The math is simple and unforgiving. Sluggish wage growth and rising rents means being put out can be just one car repair, utility bill, or health crisis away. WFDD's David Ford looks at life on that razor's edge and the toll it's taking on the renters who live there.
7: For the past 22 years, Wanda Faye Shelton has called this modest three-bedroom bungalow rental home. Uh, On a rainy morning in March, the 72-year-old widow is packing up boxes filled with four generations of belongings, and Shelton's making tough choices on what stays and what goes.
1: I I don't get but a little over $700 a month, and I I just couldn't pay all the bills.
7: Shelton doesn't want to leave this place. Her landlord is evicting her. For decades, she shared the monthly rent with her mom and one sister. They've both since passed away, leaving Shelton to stretch her fixed income to pay rent and care for her teenage granddaughter, Jamie. Even with help from her part-time job at McDonald's, the numbers just don't add up. Since 2014 in the triad, more than 100,000 eviction cases have been brought against people just like her, Renters navigating the thin line between being sheltered and homeless. Shelton tires easily after recovering from a recent outbreak of chickenpox and shingles. She can only pack for short spurts before needing to rest. She slowly scans the cluttered room, illuminated by a bare light bulb dangling from the ceiling at the end of a bright orange extension cord. Half-filled boxes, stacks of papers, a few photos and paintings hang on the dark pinewood walls.
1: I've never gotten an eviction notice. Never. And I've never been in a, a situation where I really don't have a home. I don't have a place, you know, to live.
7: For all her family is paid in rent, they could have owned this house several times over. Now she's out and has no claim on it. For Shelton, this is personal, and she's losing trust in people. The reality is, when it comes to eviction court, all parties lose something. For landlords, this is income. It's money spent changing over a vacated unit, lost when renters stop paying, and while the apartment remains empty. That, of course, gets resolved with a new tenant. But for renters, often the working poor, eviction can be the beginning of a long downward spiral.
4: Families in low-income communities don't have the cushion that they need to just pay their kind of everyday bills.
7: That's Satana Dabiri. She's the former North Carolina Housing Coalition Executive Director and current Durham County District Attorney.
4: So they tend to fall behind on rent, any type of issues they might have with their car, if they have a family member who needs to be bailed out of jail, or who has other financial issues, they just don't have a cushion to both pay their rent and deal with the things that come up every day.
7: But for all the stress evictions cause, the process itself is strangely mechanical. Nine o'clock every weekday morning, landlords and tenants file into a nondescript waiting area. Anywhere between a handful to dozens of people sit in chairs lined against the walls. A magistrate calls out names, inviting parties one case at a time into a small adjoining office. Hands on the Bible for a quick swearing in, doors left wide open, deeply personal, life-changing discussions on public display. WFDD and Wake Forest University students routinely visited eviction court over the last nine months. We had hoped to bring you audio from those hearings, but court rules prohibited us from taking our equipment inside. Requests to make an exception were repeatedly denied. Here then is our best attempt to describe what goes on there. First step, a landlord arrives at the county clerk of court's office he fills out a summons and a request to eject the tenant. Almost always, the reason is simple. The tenant is short or late on rent. And I had paid my rent for February. Uh, I figured that was fair. But see, they had papers saying I owed about $3,000 and something. Next comes the knock on the door from the sheriff's deputy. Answering the door carries an unusual risk. You're on the hook for the unpaid rent in the form of a judgment against your name. Can't pay, your credit takes a hit. If you don't answer, the deputy simply posts the notice on the door. The landlord eventually gets possession of the property. You're still left with an eviction on your record, but no money judgment.
1: I got home and the next thing I know, somebody was knocking on the door. Well, I don't. I wasn't opening my door because I live alone and that's not the best of a neighborhood.
2: The next morning, we sitting down here. I'm getting ready to go to work. I see a chair pull up. Girl, wrong.
7: Leave the papers on our door. We had eviction notice. Two weeks later, the landlord comes to court to make his case and hopefully get the blessing of a magistrate to evict his tenant. Uh, it was just cut dry. I mean, we went there and we talked to the magistrate. Most of the time, this is a simple, quick ask, and the questions come rapid fire. Do you have a lease? What does your lease say about rent being due and notice to evict? But other times, it's contentious. I put security storm doors on my houses.
1: They'll kick the screens in. They'll kick the doors in that they lock themselves out of the house. Um, They'll break a window. They don't care.
5: At least fix the kitchen floor, fix the bathroom like it's supposed to be. Get some heat in here because
7: of time is coming. Sometimes the matter is finished in a minute or less. Usually the tenant doesn't show up. But when she does, things can quickly get expensive because showing up, just like answering that door, can mean you're on the hook.
2: When I got behind on my rent, uh, we had to go to court. And then I was able to pay before the extra 10 days they give you after court. And so having to pay them Right at the start of a new month, I got behind again.
7: About a third of the time, the cases are resolved before they even get in front of a magistrate. Often it's because the tenant and landlord reach an agreement and the case gets tossed the same day of the hearing. Other times, the tenant brings proof she already settled her debt.
4: Once I showed him the paperwork with her name on it showing that I paid the rent, that's when the judge was like, you said that they didn't pay any rent and he just basically dismissed it after that.
7: Whatever the judgment is, both the tenant and landlord have 10 days to appeal. Then the landlord can go back to the clerk's office and ask that the sheriff's office assist while he changes the locks. That final knock from the deputy comes about 10 days later. Instructions are simple, grab a few necessities, medicine, a change of clothes, and get out. Tenants can arrange to come back for their belongings at a time that's convenient for the landlord. Well, since right now, uh, I don't have anywhere to uh, go because all income-based
6: apartments, they are on you know, the waiting list. So I'm just gonna go one day at a time.
1: Right now, I'm just trying to get some money together so hopefully we can get somewhere because if I'm on the street and the condition I'm in, I'm not, I'm not gonna make it.
7: The entire eviction process can take several weeks, but these steps are almost always the same. It's impossible to know how many tenants wind up on the streets, the courts don't track that, but nearly 90% of the time, the tenants lose. Some pack up the moment the sheriff tacks the notice on the door. Many leave before the hearing even takes place. Others settle up and find a way to stay even after the landlord wins in court, and still others linger until the sheriff makes that final knock on the door. The voices you heard are a small sampling from the dozens of people we spoke with following their appearance in eviction court. Richard Zuccaro, Donald Coker, Jacqueline Hurst, Katasha Whitfield, Charles Spencer, Vincent Taylor, Arkbah Hurst, Kimberly Robinson, and Sandra Cruz. On Wanda Faye Shelton's day in eviction court, she appears even smaller than her barely five foot frame. Her imposing son, Bobby Lucas, sits beside her, whispering in her ear, translating what he can of the unfamiliar process.
2: Just how many people there were, it was just horrible. There was 24 people being evicted just from that company that day.
7: Lucas and his mom didn't come here to win. They knew the rent was too steep for her to manage. They came with one simple request, a few extra days to pack up a house and basement filled over decades.
2: They said they would give us at the end of the month, but, you know, after that, They couldn't guarantee anything unless we pay a much rent.
7: That day in court will follow Shelton for years. Because she showed up, she's now responsible for unpaid rent, late fees, and court costs. The demand letter came in the mail just a few days later, a debt of nearly $1,400. And her name is now marked in another way, too. It's a bright red flag for landlords. She was a tenant who did not pay her rent. That's going to stick with her for at least seven years. Meanwhile, in the triad, the rental market is booming.
1: Hey, Heather. Hi, David. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Come on back.
7: At the Vista Realty Home Office in Winston-Salem, President Heather Coleman manages 1,000 apartment homes. Business people like her know that after a month or two of unpaid rent, the chances of recovering that money are slim. They have to cut their losses quickly. Coleman credits much of her company's longevity and success to careful background checks.
1: The best thing to know about someone is their history.
7: Today, Coleman contracts a third-party software company to run detailed screenings on all of her tenant applicants.
1: And so we look at the last couple years to kind of see what their history is, if, especially if they owe any other apartment or housing community. That They're automatically denied, to be honest, if they do. Again, it becomes a pattern if someone has skipped out before, they probably will skip out again.
7: There are exceptions if they can demonstrate an ongoing legal dispute or prove that they are paying off their balance. For Wanda Shelton's eviction case, that's out of the question. Same for the thousands of renters like her. Greensboro Housing Coalition Executive Director Brett Byerly sees daily how the stain of eviction lingers. For his clients, the rental options are limited and they're not good. Broken windows, mold, crime. Byerly says a routine computer search for an affordable unit might show 40 hits. Filtered for landlords who don't screen for evictions, just two or three. And he says the people he sees the most are single mothers. In the same way that, you know, a young man gets locked up for some sort of minor drug charge, what we're seeing is young women are getting kind of pushed out
8: in the same way that these young men are getting pushed out because now I have an eviction and nobody
7: in the world wants to talk to me. Byerly says it's a cycle that's becoming increasingly difficult to break. It was easier when the vacancy rates were 8-10% for people with evictions and things on their background to be able to still access some sort of
8: decent
0: housing. It's almost impossible for someone in this market that we're in with the vacancy rates being what they are to access anything decent or maybe to be able to
7: access anything at all. Shelton hoped to get into a public housing unit, but there are no spots available. She's on the wait list. Housing authorities in Forsyth and Guilford counties simply don't have the resources to meet the current demand, and wait times run between three and seven years. For now, with nowhere else to go, Shelton will share a trailer home with her other sister.
1: My granddaughter and I are gonna have to stay with her a little while, and maybe can go stay with my daughter. And they, they, um, we just gonna have to bounce around till we can get some. Is that scary for you? Yes, very. Very scary.
7: Shelton's sister, Rachel Barbary, who is herself battling bone cancer, is helping as much as she can with the move, steadying the ship and reminiscing about their mother who lived her final days in this house.
1: We have our memories of her being here. uh, And she wanted her family like a, a glove, fitting tight. And we tried to do that. And so it
7: was for the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who visited this place. Today, as they load the last boxes, both sisters take small comfort in those memories.
1: I worry about Faye, but the the hurt is here too in my heart, in my life, because uh, this is home, but it won't be home anymore. It won't be home anymore.
7: And for Wanda Faye Shelton, she doesn't know what the future holds, but she knows it won't be easy. The very safety net programs like social security and government housing assistance set up to allow seniors like Shelton to live out their lives with dignity aren't enough. All she's left with now is another bill she'll be unable to pay. For WFDD News, I'm David Ford.
0: Listening to On the Margins, housing struggles in the triad. I'm Emily McCord, and I'm here now with David Ford. You just heard his report. And throughout this process of telling these stories, we've been asking you, our listeners, what housing questions you have and what you want to know about. So, David, I want to get to some of those questions.
7: Uh, Listener Scotty Botanist asks, When will the city contribute to the low-income housing community?
0: More expensive apartments downtown and boarded-up government
8: housing next door? Shameful.
7: I think it's frustrating for a lot of folks. But I should point out that municipalities typically do contribute to affordable housing. The problem is that the ways in which they do that, the mechanisms that they're using don't typically produce an extremely large number of units. The low-income housing tax credit program is the primary method they're using nationally and locally for affordable housing to be built and developed. And it's it's a very stringent program from the Housing Finance Agency at the state level. Um, Greensboro Housing Coalition's Brett Byerly told me that in Greensboro, they build about 70 to 100 new units a year through this program. But each one of those costs somewhere between $120,000 and $175,000 per door. So you're you don't get many units that way.
0: What does that mean for us here long-term?
7: In long-term, I mean, Greensboro is thinking about these issues. They have they passed a bond issue a couple of years back for $25 million for affordable housing. That sounds like a lot of money, but if you divide that by $150,000, uh, you get about 160 units. So um, there's a need right now in places like Greensboro and in, certainly in Forsyth County for thousands and thousands of units. So um, it really is a drop in the bucket.
0: What else is stymieing the efforts to get more affordable housing here?
7: Well, there are a lot of headwinds. And this issue just is the crossroads for lots and lots of conflict. Uh, Russ Smith at the Winston-Salem State University's Spatial Justice Studio talks about the fact that for the 12 counties in the triad, there are roughly 60 municipalities, each one with its own planning and zoning legislations. And they're all doing their own things to meet the needs of their communities and often with no overall plan to provide affordable housing in the region. So people retreat to their individual communities and decide, you know, we don't want small zone lots because that leads to lower home values. We want big lots.
0: I know that this is a huge problem. Anything else that's a a big vector in this? Yeah, I think
7: right now there's not a lot of incentive for landlords who, who maybe abuse the system um, to change because maintaining really cheap apartments just the way they are without dumping a lot of money into repairing costs or taking on the cost of building new units, it's a moneymaker. Um, with vacancy rates hovering at all-time lows right now in some parts of the tribe, it's really a landlord's market right now, specifically in the, uh, the low-income rental market. And some of my sources have reported a recent trend in which foreign entities are purchasing up lots of properties throughout the triad for really cheap and just sitting on them. Um, They're waiting for the prices to rise. And so rather than bolstering the affordable housing stock, they're really languishing and unused at a time when really they're needed the most
0: such a complex issue, but we did have a listener who was asking about some possible solutions.
7: We got a call from Thorns Craven, who was one of the first lawyers uh, involved with Legal Aid in Winston-Salem. He joined back in 1969. And by the way, Legal Aid, it's a statewide nonprofit law firm, and their stated goal is to provide free legal services and civil matters to low-income folks. Um, But he was curious about how Legal Aid is doing today. It takes more than just saying we're going to. We're going to save the ones that we can reach and touch. Uh, We've got to be about influencing the change. Uh,
2: And I guess my question is, is there anybody working to do more to determine
7: the health of that housing market that's at the low end? Uh, Because people are choosing deliberately to invest in that. Well, I mean, it turns out that legal aid is continuing to do really good work, and they have a pretty high success rate of representing tenants, and they assert the defenses that are available to them, and also coming up with a settlement that allows these people to retain their tenancy. Um, And that's something that they generally can't do themselves because they're not familiar with the defenses. They're not familiar with how the court system operates, and legal aid can help them do that. But the chances of expanded funding, unfortunately, for legal aid by the current General Assembly are pretty minuscule.
0: Are we seeing examples of where legal aid is really making a big difference in this problem in the state?
7: Yeah, we, we are. In fact, there have been some new eviction diversion programs springing up in places like Charlotte and Durham. Uh, they're reporting that they have an 85 to 90% success rate in retaining the tenancies for defendants in those cases, which is infinitely better than what um, underrepresented defendants are able to achieve on their own in uh, small claims court or in district court.
0: Why are there not more of these programs in in places like Forsyth County?
7: And it comes back to funding. Um, Charlotte and Durham's programs are funded by their respective counties. um, And even with the additional funding for eviction diversion programs, even really successful ones like this, Legal Aid went from handling one to two percent of the eviction cases to doubling that number, but that's still like three percent. So there remains a huge gap between the need and what's available um, to assist these tenants and landlord cases. And it's a big problem as a society. So uh, these are huge issues, and uh, we'll continue grappling with them.
0: David Ford, thank you. Thanks, Emily. You're listening to On the Margins. I'm Emily McCord. In North Carolina, we know that Triad Cities top the list in its rate of evictions. Greensboro's number one, and Winston-Salem is right behind at number two. Renting properties is a business. When tenants don't pay, landlords lose income. But our investigation found it's not just businesses heading to eviction court. The government is a major player in the eviction crisis in Winston-Salem. WFDD's Eddie Garcia has this report on the unexpected role of the city's housing authority.
8: To understand how we got here, we have to look at the top. My name is Larry C. Woods.
6: I am the chief executive officer for the Housing Authority of the city of Winston-Salem.
8: This is 2015. Larry Woods testifies before the U.S. House of Representatives Budget Committee. Suit and tie, script in hand. My wife and I both grew up in public housing in New York City. He promises honesty and wags his fist to underscore his next point. Our current system is broken, plain and simple. He wants tenants to come in, find their footing, and get out. Right now, there is no exit strategy.
6: We are simply warehousing people in our programs. The social safety net, he says, has
8: morphed into flypaper. Like the famous line from Godfather Three, just when I thought I was getting out, I am pulled back in. He's here today asking for more flexibility in how his agency operates. For instance, housing authorities are prohibited By law, to require its residents to participate in self-reliance programs.
6: We cannot mandate that.
8: He wants to steer people towards self-sufficiency. That's the social mission of the Housing Authority under Woods. But a WFDD and Carolina Data Desk investigation found that, for many residents, that exit from public housing is coming at the height of instability. The Housing Authority of Winston-Salem, the agency that houses the poor, filed the second-highest number of evictions in Forsyth County since 2014. Last year alone, it brought evictions against nearly 40 percent of the households living in its public housing units. In a recent interview with WFDD, Woods defends his agency's practices. This is not
6: charitable. This is not a charitable operation. It wasn't designed to be a charitable operation.
8: It has it has expenses just like everyone else. But evictions have become such a matter of routine at the Housing Authority of Winston-Salem, or HAWS, that they dominate eviction court calendars several days a month. We're talking nearly 600 cases a year. That number is equal to about half the total units it owns.
5: Well, I mean, half is... It's a pretty astonishing number.
8: That's Eric Dunn. He's the director of litigation with the National Housing Law Project. Its work focuses on enforcing the rights of tenants in the poorest communities.
5: That that would seem to me to indicate that there's some kind of fundamental problem with the way they're, they're managing the program.
8: Housing authorities are allowed to evict people. In fact, they have a lot of flexibility in how they go about their business. Winston-Salem's Housing Authority drafts its mission statement, sets its budget, and the leader shapes the agency's philosophy. Dunn says when a housing authority is more business-minded, it can be less sensitive towards the struggles facing low-income families. Children take turns on the playground slide at Cleveland Avenue Apartments while a group of mothers stand guard nearby. This complex is run by the Housing Authority. Thousands of the community's poorest residents make a home here, families, children, and the elderly. Some are able to work, others rely on disability. Each earns less than 80% of Forsyth's median income. Residents don't live here for free. They pay what the federal government thinks is fair, 30% of their gross income. At the very least, a tenant has to contribute $50 a month. A relative bargain, and the most basic of responsibilities, if you ask Woods, he expects these renters to be, in his words, model tenants. And if a family has the ability to pay $50 a month, that $50 will be the first thing you pay so you know that I've got a place to live. So, where did Larry Woods' philosophy on public housing take root? Well, he says as a child growing up in public housing in New York, he witnessed people climb out of the system through hard work and perseverance. His childhood shaped the mindset he brought to Hawes. He calls it the self-reliance model. Give a man a fish, he eats a day, teach him how to fish, he
6: feeds him and his family for life,
8: okay? When Woods came to the housing authority, the agency was in crisis. The former chair of its board and executive director were under investigation in a property-flipping scheme. But when Woods took the helm, he saw a different kind of crisis. He saw residents who planted themselves in the system, generation after generation, not working towards self-sufficiency. Subsidized housing is just that, it's subsidized housing. For some reason, it becomes almost as if this is a permanent fixture. I don't believe families in subsidized housing need to be a permanent fixture. And that's not what all tenants want either, but the cost of rent is on the rise. It can be hard to work your way out of the system. Ebony Black, who faced eviction in the spring, says she and her partner have tried.
5: We were good jobs. We've been, there. we've been to school. Like we're
4: just not some people that just live in the hood and want to live here and take advantage of the government. We are educated people. We are a family. You know, we're trying to move from here, but it's just like it's like we can't get up. It's like we got stuck somewhere, and it's just not working out.
8: Some tenants do manage to scrounge together money owed, but the deck is stacked against them in court. The vast majority of the time, the magistrate grants the housing authorities request to evict. But officials at Hawes say only one hundred and fifty one households, that's about a quarter of those they tried to evict, were actually displaced. Woods says those empty units are an opportunity.
6: You know, if you don't want to fish, you don't have to fish. But let somebody else grab that pole and allow them to
8: fish. Some people say they don't want to see the proverbial fishing pole pass so frequently. People like Dan Rose. He's with Housing Justice Now, an advocacy group that's been canvassing at Cleveland Avenue Apartments. He talks with residents, urging them to take action.
1: We need everybody
7: to fight, and that that way we can clog up the courts, make it so that they can't just keep pushing people out, one right after the other.
8: And it's not just late rent that lands people in eviction court. WFDD found a surprising factor driving eviction costs, unpaid bills for gas and electricity. In 2018, half of the cases Haas brought against tenants included debts for utilities. Often, these bills can be really high, hundreds of dollars, and some people owed more utility than past due rent. Why does this matter? For people on fixed incomes, an unexpectedly high utility bill can put them over the edge. And the bills can be confusing for people like Philom Tart, a sharp-dressed guy with a tidy apartment who lives in Piedmont Park. He prides himself on taking care of his business, no matter what. but money's tight.
2: I'm on a fixed income. You know what I mean, that, that is the ugly part about this situation, man. I'm disabled. and his utility bills are unpredictable.: I went from 1342 to 63. 96. Now, how, do, how is that possible?
8: The housing authority sets a limit on what it says TART should use. If he uses more than they allow, well, that comes out of his pocket.
2: You see what that bill is? Now, how in the world are I
8: supposed to pay that much money? The utility provider bills the housing authority. Then the housing
2: authority bills the tenant. It's supposed to be for my bill now. Now, I don't see my name on here nowhere, but at the same time, this is supposed to be my bill. Again, it's the housing authority that's doing the math, and TART is suspicious. Maintenance man reading the meters. How do you read the meters? Where's the Piedmont Natural Gas at? You could say there's frustration. This is our biggest problem over here. We can't talk to nobody for Piedmont Natural Gas because we don't have nothing in our name. So our voices is none in void.
8: Tenants can feel unheard. It breeds fear and distrust
2: of the system. Tart feels eviction is almost wielded as a weapon. We don't have a defense for it, because as soon as you go against the grain, any type of way, they will use that eviction power. The Housing Authority
8: actually does have software that automatically triggers an eviction notice if rent is unpaid, whether that's $500 or $50. But it makes special cases for hardships. Larry Wood says that's on the tenant to alert the office. We're not being
6: mean, we're not being vicious. Again, I think it's, it's giving people a false narrative to say it's OK not to pay and there's no consequences. There are consequences. If there's a hardship, we will take a look at it. You have a right to come in and say this is my hardship and provide documentation.
8: Tenants say they don't always feel the door is open and they have reason to feel that way. WFDD acquired a document distributed to residents of Piedmont Park last fall that says as much. It announces a new policy. No more tolerance for late rent payments. No exceptions. And there's this line. The management office will no longer set appointments to discuss unpaid rents. We showed this notice to Woods. This is
6: this is um, troubling for me because we do set up appointments, and we do allow families to go into uh, uh, uh,
8: payment agreements. Woods hadn't seen this memo until we showed it to him. We asked him if property managers should have this kind of discretion. Again, I think, I think it was poorly written because uh, tenants can't
6: go in and meet with their manager. Managers are accessible. They can go in and talk to them
8: and, and have discussions with them. The Housing Authority's policy specifically says residents must have an opportunity to discuss possible evictions. On its face, this memorandum is in direct conflict with that. Again, Fair Housing Attorney Eric Dunn.
5: That's just antithetical to, um, you know, really the mission of providing housing to the people who are literally the the poorest people we have in the country.
8: Since we spoke with Woods, officials from Hawes say they're circulating a new memo, clarifying that tenants can talk with property management about rent concerns and hardship exemptions. And Hawes says it's making sure that property staff understands this. Evictions come with many costs, from the personal to the financial, whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant. And it costs the housing authority a significant amount of money to go through this process. So much so that it begs the question, is it worth it? So you're so just asking me, don't go for any evictions, don't collect any rent, how do I, how do I operate then? Here are the dollars and cents, at least $330,000. That's what the housing authority says it was owed from tenants it tried to evict in 2018, according to WFDD's review of these case files. Money that's hard to collect. To go to court to try? Another $80,000. And don't forget the costs of turning over the units. For 2018 alone, that's a hefty bill. We're talking at least $300,000. Add it all up, a ton of money. It could be out more than $700,000. As for the people that go through the eviction process,
2: it's the personal cost that follows them the most. When they put that mark on you, that's, that's, that's like a, what do you call it, A tattoo? You can't get rid of it, you're marked. So wherever you go to try to get a place to stay, they have that on your record and you are hindered as an individual.
8: So for 2018, there's at least 364 unique defendants, whether they've exited from the housing authority of Winston-Salem or not, that now wear that mark. They're also marked for purposes of creditors and the National Public Housing Database. That keeps them from entering the system again until they settle what they owe. Year after year, money does come trickling back into Hawes. It comes as tenants try to square away their credit. Wood says he welcomes them back into the housing authority of Winston-Salem so long as that old debt is settled. Can they be implied? Sure. Each site has, has a waiting list, and you can go to a site and put your name on a waiting list. The thing is, they go to the back of the line. And right now, there are nearly 12,000 people waiting ahead of them. For WFDD, I'm Eddie Garcia.
0: You're listening to On the Margins. I'm Emily McCord, and I'm joined now with Eddie Garcia. We've been answering listener questions throughout the hour. Let's hear from Judith Mader.
1: How does Larry Woods know that
2: managers are meeting with their tenants?
8: Well, a few weeks after we interviewed Larry Woods, we followed up with the housing authority to ask that very question. And some officials gave us assurances that after we alerted them of that memorandum, that they went out to property managers and other people on staff to let them know that tenants do, in fact, have that right and need to be allowed to have discussions with them about um, any unpaid rent. And also, the day after the story aired, Philom Tart, who's featured in our story, sent us a picture of a memo that was sent out to tenants as well, letting them know that they can indeed speak with the housing authority if they're having an issue.
0: Let's hear from uh, another listener question now. This one is from Ryan Packett.
8: Does the Housing Authority of Winston-Salem offer any financial counseling for residents, either directly or through a partnership with another organization? They do. They actually have someone on site that's called a Ross coordinator, and Ross stands for Resident Opportunities and Self-Sufficiency. And they work with outside organizations. They work with Sunnyside Ministries and Financial Pathways of the Piedmont and the Center for Home Ownership to kind of help people get some of those skills they might need as they may move out of the system or to help them while they're in the system. And from what I understand, that was partially funded from the Housing Authority, and it's partially funded from the Reynolds Foundation.
0: To build on what Ryan Packett was asking, a lot of times during your story, Larry Woods refers to self-sufficiency and what he calls that self-reliance model. Is there anything in place right now that will actually help folks move through that system?
8: Yes, we didn't touch it in the story, but there is something called step up housing. Hawes has about 200 units like this. Um, What they are is they're somewhere in between public housing and the free market, if you will. Um, From what Woods told me, is that these units are more like something you'd get in the open market. Uh, They're a little bit nicer, there's no public hallways or common areas. He compared them more to like a townhome or a garden apartment. And I think they're a little more stringent on the work requirement if you're in one of these units. And when he did tell me about those, I asked um, if he had any data to kind of show me how successful that program has been. And unfortunately, he doesn't have any data, but he said he's trying to get in touch with HUD to get funding to give them this system that would help them to let people know how successful that program is being.
0: Eddie Garcia, thank you. Thank you. is a collaboration between WFDD, Carolina Data Desk at the UNC School of Media and Journalism and Wake Forest University's journalism program. It was made possible through funding from the Knight Foundation. A special thank you to investigative reporter Mandy Locke, journalism professor at University of North Carolina, Ryan Thornburg, and Wake Forest University Director of Journalism, Phoebe Zerwick. Music for On the Margins was composed and recorded by 1970s Filmstock. I'm Emily McCord.